Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. On today's episode, Danny talks with Dr. Mark Hyman, director of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, to discuss the steps needed to stop the spread of COVID-19. Please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and also share this episode on your social media channels. Enjoy the show. Today, I get to chat with somebody I really, really like a lot. He's been very good to Food Tank. Uh, Dr. Mark Hyman is a practicing family physician and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, author, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. He is the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, a 13-time uh, New York Times bestselling author, and board president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine. It doesn't get better for to, like than oh, having wow. a bio like that. It just doesn't. Yeah. Um, and he's also one of, uh, the host of one of the leading health podcasts, uh, The Doctor's Pharmacy. And he just came out with a very cool book, uh, food fix, how uh, to save our health, our economy, our, our economy, our communities, and our planet one bite at a time. And I'm very honored that he decided to include um, a little bit about Food Tank in that book. So thank you, Dr. Of course Hyman. I did. Yeah, no, you're usually inspirational for me and your work is incredible. And I draw a lot on it. And I think the community you built and the network is just amazing. And I think uh, we're going to be able to do a lot of work together to fix the food system. You've been charging this battle, but uh, I want to put a lot of money behind it, a lot of political smarts and really drive the change we need to see in policy. Cause you know, the food system's messed up and yeah, um, it's driving sure. so much suffering, um, particularly chronic disease, uh, which mm -hmm. is the result of the food we're eating. And now we're seeing that the, for example, in Louisiana, the data just came out today that there's seven yeah. times the rate of death in Louisiana because of the obesity and chronic disease caused by yeah. that. And that. That's just, to me, that's just terrifying. And it, it underscores the urgency of us dealing with this food system that's creating food that's making us all sick and obese, which is now 42% of us. And, 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 and the ones who are dying are the ones who are sick. And not just the elderly. If you look at the communities in this country that are 20 to 40 years old, 40% sure. of the hospitalizations for COVID-19 and, and they're dying at three times the rate of everybody else. So I think this is, this is an alarm bell for us to really uh, deal with the, the food system in a much more focused way. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Louisiana. I lived in New Orleans for many years and like to know that the rate of infection of COVID-19 is so high there and, you know, is, is making well, me very nervous. the rate of infection, nervous. but the rate of death from the infection yeah. is high. So absolutely. For, so for everybody who gets it, there's more people that die in Louisiana because of the chronic disease. Yeah, our hearts go out to that that state and, and all of my friends there. And, and I know a, a lot of people love, um, you know, going there as tourists. So, you know, please keep them in your thoughts. You know, you've done so much on policy and, and you know, uh, the, the role of medical workers in crisis like these. 
what actions do you think policymakers need to take immediately to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and, and reduce those death rates that you've been so adamant about talking about? Well, we've had a fiasco of, of leadership in this country around COVID-19. Um, South Korea and the uh, United States both had their first cases the same day. Mm. Korea, as of a couple of days ago when I last looked, there were 9,700 cases. And in the United States, there's 174,000 cases. And the reason is they were on it. Uh, and they were aggressive in developing a test, in deploying the test, in being aggressive in testing everybody who had symptoms and all their contacts and being aggressive about isolating them. We just did not do that. Why, were, Dr. Hyman? <clears throat> why didn't we do that? Because our leadership... Um, you know, was, was not standing up and didn't understand that this is coming and that it's coming fast and that we need to prepare and, and was woefully unprepared. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the, 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 the current administration disbanded the pandemic, you know, task force, uh, which, which is something that would have helped us prepare for this. They also um, said to the CDC that they should be the ones doing the test. They developed a test that was inadequate. It wasn't produced and it wasn't um, available. And so, mm -hmm. so we got way behind the eight ball on the testing, so, which means we couldn't really do the containment. We have to do what we call mitigation, which has led to this massive social distancing, which is gonna go on for a long time. And I think you know, the, the things that need to happen right now in order to solve this is one, a massive upscale in the production of protective gear. We call, right. um, we call it, personal protective equipment for doctors and nurses and healthcare workers there on the front lines. Can you imagine sending a soldier into war without a gun or a helmet or, right. or equipment? And that's what's happening to our heroes where the doctors and nurses on the front lines. And it's just unconscionable that we don't have enough of these supplies and they haven't been put in production. You know, during World War II, Ford Motor Company was able to produce a B-24 bomber every 63 minutes. Wow. If they could produce an airplane every 63 minutes, why can't we produce masks and gowns and gloves and protective gear? That's number one. Number two, we need to scale up testing and it needs to be widespread, available, easy, accessible. We need massive testing centers all around the country like they had in South Korea. We just mm -hmm. drive through, they stick a swab in your nose and they send it, right. they track it, and then they find out who's sick and then they are really aggressive about isolating contacts. Uh, and that, that needs to happen. It's starting to happen, but it's still too slow. Uh, and three, you know, we need to maintain this social distancing for a while until, even though it's crippling our economy, we, you know, I just saw the jobless rate, uh, you know, was the maximum uh, applications for unemployment in 1982 when there was a massive, you know, economic downturn was 690,000. And yesterday it was 6.2 million. Oh, 10 times that. So we're seeing a real yeah. trouble, but we, we have to maintain this social isolation. I wouldn't say isolation. I would say distancing. Uh, although mm -hmm. It feels sometimes isolating, uh, although here we are hanging out on Zoom. I so, know. <laughs> Facebook. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think we really need to, to really be serious about that. We need to contain the spread so that uh, it doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system because if, if all of us get sick at once and we're all about and about doing our business, uh, it's going to be a problem. 
And then I think we need to, you know, accelerate the development of innovative and different kinds of treatments. Uh, there are sure. things being tried like the hydrochloroquine and, and the, the Zithromax and others. There's remdesivir. There's other pilots that are going on uh, and Cleveland Clinic were involved in those. But there are some out-of-the-box things uh, that, that should be done and that are low cost, that are widely available, that are easy to do. And that have a high, a high benefit to risk ratio. And number one is vitamin C. I intravenous vitamin C. There were multiple trials in um, China where they have done this and, and showed a great shortening of the of the, um, the condition and lack of progression to needing ICU and to needing ventilators. Uh, the other is Italy has just introduced into 15 hospitals intravenous ozone therapy. Ozone is mm. a therapy that's not used much in America. It's used in Europe. It's used in many other countries in South America. Uh, and but, but here we've sort of neglected it. And it's been around for a long time. Uh, and it's the ma most massive disinfectant on the planet. It'll kill everything. Uh, and ozone gas can be injected, mixed with blood, or injected directly into the vein. Wow. Uh, and, and, and kills everything. It kills viruses, bacteria, tick infections. But it also helps the body to reactivate its own immune system in a positive way, not overreact, but, but to actually help the immune system. So uh, I'm working with, uh, trying to work with these Italian scientists and look at what's going on and see if we can get some pilots because that's something that can be done quickly, easily, inexpensively in every hospital uh, and really hopefully unburden the healthcare system and protect healthcare workers. Um, there's some other interesting therapies that are convalescent serum therapies where they take the antibodies from a person who's been infected and they can spin them down and then they put them back into another person like a healthcare worker to protect them with mm -hmm. passive immunity or they can or they can give it to people who are sick lots more. It's, it takes a lot more to do that. So these are the kinds of things that need to happen. Uh, eventually what's going to happen is it'll spread through the population. Probably 40 to 70% of us will get it. And you think about it, that's over 150 million Americans. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, the more we can get through this well uh, by taking care of ourselves, I think the, the re-emphasis on, on taking care of our own personal health as a, as a collective strategy, because if we're resistant to getting sick, if we're, when we get sick, less likely to get very sick and less likely to go to the hospital, less likely to need an ICU admission, less likely to need a ventilator, we're going to help the whole system. So uh, focusing on our personal health sure. is really important. You know, 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. <laughs> I'm just going to say it again. 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. 88% of Americans are metabolically wow. unwell. That's high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, right? <laughs> prediabetes, you know, one in two Americans has prediabetes. 75% of us are overweight. Yeah. And even people who are thin, 25% of people who are thin are metabolically obese, normal weight, meaning they're thin on the outside, fat on the inside. So if you eat sugar and you say, oh, I'm eating sugar and I'm skinny, it's fine. No, you're not fine. Uh, and, and, and so there's a very few, few of us who are actually healthy, and that's 12%. And those people are, are, are more resistant to getting sick, more likely to survive and do well. 80% of those people who get it do well and, and, and are able to you know, have sort of a bad flu or cold at home. 20% sure. uh, go to the hospital. 5% need to get admitted to the ICU. And about 1% will die, although that rate is, is dependent on the level of chronic disease in the population. So if you're looking at elderly populations, if you're looking at people with heart disease or diabetes, it's seven to 10 times more. So, so uh, you know, you, you have to do your, your part by actually taking time now not to 
say, well, I'm just at home. I'm going to eat cookies and watch Netflix. And no, sure. you can't do that. You, you've got to, uh, for, your, for yourself and for your civic responsibility, have to take control of your own health. And, and, and that means eating real whole food uh, that's unprocessed uh, and that's nourishing and that, that uses the concepts of functional medicine and, and food as medicine. And I've written a lot about it. There's a, a blog that I wrote. It's called, uh, you can find it at drhyman.com forward slash C19. That's like COVID-19, but C19, drhyman.com forward slash C19. And you can read about what foods that are particularly helpful to boost your immune system, what mm -hmm. foods you need to help be antiviral. Like I just made a, a pasta sauce with oregano, which is an antiviral, for example, or garlic and, and so forth. These are very helpful healing foods. I talk about other measures as well. So I think there's so much that we can do. Absolutely. Those are the kinds of things that need to happen for us to really attack this. Well, well, Dr. Hyman, you, you also mentioned earlier, you know, the massive unemployment rate that's going on right now. And there are so many people out of work and so many people, you know, sort of on on the edge of poverty, if not just deep in poverty right now. And it's the beginning of the month. Many people will be likely evicted from their homes because they can't pay rent or, or their mortgage. It's hard for those folks to eat whole healthy foods. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm interested in your thoughts about how policy can change. You know, there have been massive cuts to SNAP benefits or food stamps. How can we make sure that our government realizes that the first line of defense in keeping people safe from COVID-19 is really a healthy diet? Yeah, I, I think that's really important. I think, I think there, are, there, there are two aspects to that question. One is, is it expensive to eat real food? And I'm, I'm going to challenge that assumption. Yes, if you want a $70 ribeye grass-fed steak and some heirloom tomatoes, fine. But, but, you know, I've been actually working on meals here in my home that are super inexpensive. We made a lentil dal with rice. We made, you know, uh, we call pasta puttanesca. We use chickpea pasta, so it's got more protein and no gluten. But it's the whore's pasta. In fact, it's, it's cooking right now. I'm going to have it when I'm done. Where That's we great. have onions and onions and capers and olives and garlic. And we throw in some eggplants, some tomatoes, can of tomato sauce, super inexpensive, literally pennies a serving. Uh, and people, if they learned how to cook and use real food, could actually eat well for a lot less. Rice and beans are not expensive. Lots of vegetables are not expensive. And there's a great guide called Good Food on a Tight Budget from the Environmental Working Group that teaches people how to do this. And I work with families in the worst food deserts in America and taught them how to do this, and they were able to do it. So I just want to put that out there, that it's, it's a problem of, of education, of learning how to cook, of learning what to do with food. It's, it's not that it's impossible. But with that said, the government really needs to step up and understand that this is a moment to address the crisis in our food system. Because if, if we continue on the trajectory that we are, we're going to have an even worse problem than COVID-19. So COVID-19 is an acute problem and it's creating acute suffering. But chronic disease is just that. It's a chronic problem that is going to cripple our nation and cripple our population. Like I said, 12% of us are healthy. That puts a right. burden on the economy, the healthcare system. So the policies need to change, policies that incentivize things right from the farm. So we need to start at the seed level. We need to start at the soil level. We need to start with how and what food we grow so that it regener it's regenerative, regenerative for the soil, regenerative for health, and regenerate for the environment and can, as a side effect, draw down carbon and actually help reverse climate change. So it's a, a win, win, win and make more money for the farmers. And then, and then we need to 
incentivize farmers to do this. We need to incentivize uh, food companies to do the right thing. We need to make sure they're accountable for what they're doing and, and, and actually create incentives and disincentives within the system so that people will stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. Uh, we need to help our, our food stamp program actually have nutrition in the guidelines. I mean, this is just unconscionable. Uh, and and uh, when you dig into this, and I, I dug into it in my book, Food Fix, you know, it's the biggest Again, government program, it is, right? It's, the, it. it's, 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 you know, it's almost a trillion dollars. Sure. The farm bill is almost a trillion dollars every 10 years. About 735 billion of that is food stamps. 75% of food stamps or SNAP is for junk food. And 10% or 7 billion a year is for soda. Now, people on the hunger uh, sort of perspective say, well, we can't stigmatize the poor. We can't restrict their access to what they're eating. We can't have nutrition guidelines on it. But when you look a little deeper on these groups like Feeding America, which do good work, on the board and the funding is big food. <laughs> so they, right. they, they, don't want, they, they don't want you to change the food stamps and they oppose that. Uh, and so uh, there, there are precedents for this. School lunch, there are nutrition guidelines. We can argue whether they're good or bad, but there are guidelines for the quality of the food. There are guidelines in the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, or WIC, for the guidelines about what the quality of nutrition be for women and children. Why can't we do that for everybody? And we think we can with incentives for positive. So, so there are double bucks for, for, for food stamps and Absolutely. farmers markets. There, are, there are, are models out there that we could save $100 billion if we just gave people a 30% incentive on fruits and vegetables and healthy food and a slight disincentive on junk food. So there's, there's a lot of things that need to get done across yeah. the food policy spectrum. And I, I talk about a lot of these food fixes in, in, the, in the book. It's not called food apocalypse. It's called food fix. Because the, goal, <laughs> the goal is to really focus on the solutions, but we have to identify sure. the, the way all these things intersect. And Food Tank is an extraordinary organization that has uh, really uh, you know, been among the few groups that have really seen the network of, of connections between our health, our food system, our economy, our climate, environment, social justice. I mean, all these things are related, education, national security, and, and people don't link these together and connect the dots. So I, I really applaud you, Danny, for, for leading that fight and seeing that. Because, you know, there, there, there are very few people who get it. And I, I'm in Washington frequently, and I'm just, I'm just appalled at, at the low level of education. It's not that they're bad people. They just right. don't know. And the only people yeah. they hear from are the food industry. Right. So they don't hear from the good guys. I mean, and they need to hear from more of their constituents about these things. And, and you know, voters need to to make food more of a, a voting issue so that politicians yeah. understand that it's not just about big ag and big food. Dr. Hyman, I'm interested in, in getting your thoughts. You know, we don't know exactly how this virus started, but there are some, um, you know, uh, inklings of that. It's, you know, it, it, it came out of a system of either, you know, the, the bushmeat trade, the wildlife, the illegal wildlife trade in, in China and, and wet markets and putting, you know, large groups of animals, whether it's, you know, industrialized animal operations, uh, very close to people. Um, what, what are your thoughts on how the virus spread and how it might be diet related? And again, the jury's not out. There's still a lot of investigation going on. I just wanted to get your thoughts on how you think the virus developed. Well, you know, it was interesting. I was, I was, um, I was uh, I was watching a, a movie about the Spanish flu, the uh, nineteen eighteen. Mm -hmm. I don't want to call it Spanish flu because it originated in Kansas, <laughs> but I think it was because during World War One nobody was talking about it, 
and uh, Spain was neutral, and they actually had tremendous amounts of media about it, mm-hmm. and everybody else was trying to suppress it because they didn't want their enemies to know that their soldiers were dying. So in Kansas, it was from a farm, uh, and it was from a pig uh, pig farm, and it infected this small town, but then the two sold two young men from that town went to join the army, and that's how it all started. Uh, and I think, you know, often this is animal to human transmission, whether it's the bird flu or whether it's swine flu. That's mm-hmm. why they call them those things. Uh, maybe this should be called the bat flu. Um, sure. but, it, but, but I think, uh, you know, there's some evidence that it, that it did arise from an animal source, from humans eating animals, which I don't think is a terrible thing. It's just, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're eating wild things, we should be careful. If we're looking at industrial animal production, it's, it's a breeding ground for all sorts of bad things, including bad bacteria. You know, I, I was reading that the, the, um, the death rates are going to be higher from COVID because of antibiotic resistance. Not that right. antibiotics work against viruses, but, but people get a secondary pneumonia from mm-hmm. their lungs being inflamed and the antibiotics don't work. And, and the large part of antibiotic resistance comes from the fact that we use the majority of our antibiotics for animal feed and animal uh, growth. Uh, so it's right. antibiotics, not just a prevention for getting, getting crowded animals to not get sick, but actually it's a growth factor. And also, by the way, in, in humans take it, it makes them gain weight too. So I think, I think you know, we, we make about 37 million pounds of antibiotics in America. 30 million is for prevention or for growth in animals. And, and then those animals, those bugs get resistant, they hop over, and we, we've been able to track through DNA testing the, 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 the resistant bugs that then get transferred into hospital settings and humans. So we're, we're in this kind of mess. And when you think, you know, uh, globally, 700,000 people die every year from antibiotic resistance at a cost of over $2 trillion. Right. So, wow, like, you know, we got, we, got, we got to see these interconnections and we've got to deal with the system as, as a whole. Absolutely. And, and just to shift gears a little bit, I mean, in Food Fix and, and other things that you've written, you've talked about how our current food system just doesn't produce poor quality food. It, it really produces harsh working environments for yeah. uh, for workers and, and that can lead to poor health. But it also leads to, you know, things like loss of biodiversity and yeah. loss of soil health. You know, as you've mentioned before, a lot of folks don't understand those interconnections. How can we get people to really understand how all of these things are related? Well, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> Maybe we need a movie because people don't read books. Again, buy food uh, fix. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, well, actually, it's interesting you mentioned the food workers. You know, food and farm workers are the number one um, group of people who are employed in America, um, 20 million people. And today, restaurants are closed, fast food restaurants are closed, which may be a good thing. We can talk about that. Uh, but also, I, uh, I think, I, I, and they're often underpaid. They, they don't have benefits, uh, and they are at, at high risk um, in, in terms of their economic security. Uh, and we do subsidize them in tremendous ways where the food industry is able to sell us cheap food because the government pays for Medicare. I mean, Medicaid for these people. They pay for their health care when they can't afford it. They, they, you know, we pay with billions of dollars in tips for restaurant workers. It really makes the food so cheap. So, um, and, and what I worry about now is that on the farms, a lot of the farm workers are migrant workers. You know, we talk about immigrants, but the truth is without them, uh, we would not be eating in this country. And, and they do a lot of the hard work that we don't want to do. The brown and the black people do the hard work that we don't want to do. And, and, and they are the ones who are now living in poor conditions. They're often in crowded bunk houses and crowded living situations. 
and 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 I worry about our food supply being at risk because if if COVID nineteen sweeps through the migrant farm community, like whoa, who's going to pick the vegetables? Who's going to we're who's screwed? We're screwed. Yeah. So I think I think people aren't probably thinking about that. I've been thinking about that lately, and and we need to really figure out how to help these people and, and take care of them. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so if, if you're if you're not a doctor and you're not a policymaker and you're not somebody who works in the food system, what are your suggestions for folks? Uh, you know, what, what can they do yeah, right now besides right. eating more healthy food and cooking yeah, more? Yeah. Well, yeah, so that's great. So in my, in my book, I, I outline a lot of things that people can do. And, and on my website uh, for the book, it's called foodfixbook.com. There's a food fix action guide. And it's the top 20 things that you can do as an individual. Mm-hmm. The, the top things businesses can do that we need to do in agriculture, policymakers need to do. So there's a really deep set of, of suggestions and it's not comprehensive, but it's, it's a pretty good start for the things we need to think about. And so as individuals, yes, you start by becoming what I call a regenitarian. There are mm-hmm. so many diet wars out there. I'm sort of sick of it. And I, sure. I jokingly created something called the Pegan diet, which is a spoof <laughs> on the paleo vegan controversies. And, and essentially, it's, it's, if you can think of eating in a way that regenerates your health and regenerates the health of the environment, the soil, that's what you should be doing. And it's not possible today you know, at scale because we just don't have enough of those farms. But there are more and more farmers, whether you go to your local farmer's market, join the community support of agriculture, which is a great thing to do, by, by the way, because the farmers will drop the stuff up and leave it at your door. You don't need to go out. Sure. <laughs> or you can pick it up at a central location. Um, those are ways to get more local, re- re- sustainable, or organic, or re- regenerative uh, foods. There's places online you can buy, like Thrive Market, Mariposa mm-hmm. Ranch, uh, Butcher Box, where you can get grass-fed and regeneratively raised meats. So there, there's access that people can have to these things. So so try to get rid of industrial food from your life. If you can do that, you are going to make a difference. And here's why. We think, oh, just what can I do? What can one person do? It doesn't make a difference. My choices don't count. But when you look at the things that are starting to happen in the food system, you've got big companies moving because of consumer preferences. So Burger King, which I would not consider healthy no matter what, uh, one, they introduced a plant-based burger. That's another subject, whether that's healthy or not, but they they did that. And then they created an ad. They created an ad which showed a big Whopper going moldy over 34 days. And the (laughs) tagline at the end was the beauty of no artificial preservatives. Now, that doesn't make a big worker healthy, but it means that they're paying attention. Kellogg said by 2025, we're going to get rid of glyphosate in our Cheerios, in our cereal. Now, why is there glyphosate, which is weed killer, in your cereal? Because they spray it on 70 different crops. It's the most abundant agrochemical there is out there. And, and it, it's sprayed at the harvest, which is, makes it very high concentration. And in your Cheerios, there is more glyphosate than there is vitamin D and B12, which are actually added and fortified to the cereal. Wow. Uh, and, and glyphosate is a tear. Think about it as an antibiotic for the soil. It's a, it's, it's, and it kills your own microbiome, which is so important for your immune system. Yeah. So that's good. And also uh, Danone and General Mills, and you have these guys at your conference, they're actually funding now farmers to convert mm-hmm. their farms to regenerative agriculture. And that's not because they're good, you know, they're good intention. It's because they're realizing this is where things are going. This is what Absolutely. they need to do for their business. It's what eaters want. It's what you and what I and want. a lot of other people want. 
And it's also also I think existential for their businesses. I mean, they 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 may be thinking about what we're what we're wanting, but they're also realizing that if we continue to grow food the way we grow food, we're not going to be able to grow food in the future because of the destruction yeah. of our soils and our agricultural systems and the climate. And so they understand that if they want to stay in business, they need to buy the raw materials. In order to buy the raw materials, they need to have a functioning agricultural system. And the only way they know that that's going to happen is if we move to regenerative agriculture because status quo is bad for them, it's bad for us, bad for everything. Really, yeah, absolutely. Business as usual is can no longer hold. Um, so again, the, some of the the websites you mentioned, foodfixbook.com. You can find out more information about Dr. Hyman at drhyman.com. Before we end, I, I want to know who's inspiring you during all of this, Dr. Hyman. Who who's standing out? Who's one of the leaders or or people you've met or a patient or just somebody who's really like giving you some hope? Well, um, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci is a pretty awesome guy. Uh, oh, my God. Actually, I, I <laughs> run actually, for president, please, Dr. Yeah, Fauci. Well, he's 79. <laughs> he's probably uh, old enough now to run for president. Uh, <laughs> but but he, <laughs> I met him uh, in 1988 because um, he was heading up the AIDS crisis at the time, which was I was in, in training in San Francisco, my residency, and he came and gave a talk. And wow. he was just so grounded, so wise, so smart, so caring. And you can just see that. And I think he's he's really an incredible leader. Uh, and, and I think thank God he's there and hopefully he doesn't get kicked out. Uh, oh, I also, yeah. And I also I also think um, all of us, I mean, all of us, I think, you know, in this in this world, it's been incredibly divisive. Uh, and full of conflict and hatred and opposition, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, whether it's, you know, China, U.S., whether it's, you know, Muslim, Christian, whether it's paleo, vegan, everybody's fighting. And, and this is a moment where we're all in this shared common experience yeah. and our, our common humanity is clear and people are being responsible for the most part. Um, they are staying at home. They're, they're hunkering down. People are, 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 I think, in a sense, more empathetic with each other. They're more kind sure. to each other. They're more attentive to helping humanity in this way. And I think that, that all of us are the heroes. I think all of us are inspiring me to a, perhaps a different world after uh, this, this all ends and we get back to life. What will the world look like? I think it might be a little kinder, a little nicer. Oh, I hope so. I hope you're right. I kind of know you're right. Um, again, <laughs> Doctor, well, I'm an optimist. You know, they, they, they actually uh, they say the optimists are, are live longer, even if they're wrong. So that's okay. <laughs> Good to think positively. Um, so again, you can go to drhyman.com, uh, foodfixbook.com, and you can also subscribe uh, to the wonderful podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy. It's really, really informative. Um, thank you so much, Mark. Just a of reminder course. that this. This, uh, this episode will also appear on Food Tank's podcast, uh, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And uh, just a reminder that we will be interviewing uh, here again tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time, Eleanor Kuntz from LeafWorks. So thank oh. you so much, Mark. Please stay well. Okay, you too. Stay, stay safe, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.